Good morning, church. It is uh, so good to be with you on this Lord's Day uh, once again. And it is a privilege to uh, be able to serve uh, His Word to you, which we will get to in just a few seconds or minutes. So keep your Bibles or your devices uh, with you as we'll be going through this passage. It was just read uh, verse by verse. You may or, or may not recognize uh, Usain Bolt, uh, known as the world's fastest man. Uh, he was clocked at running, that's running, not driving a car, 27.79 miles per hour. Uh, that is fast. That is really fast. He is known as the world's fastest man, and I have him on the screen today because we have uh, the fastest man in 2 Samuel in today's passage. Uh, his name is Ahimahaz, and I don't know uh, how he might compete against Usain Bolt. Uh, this was before the radar clock, and he was a distance runner, but the situation with Ahimahaz... Um, for those of you that are visiting today, or you might not remember him, he's one of David's men, and he's a spy. And in those days, uh, there was no uh, texting, there was no phone calls. The way you communicated something was with a runner, literally with someone who ran. Uh, a mule or a horse or something like that would be reserved for elite people in society, for a king or the king's sons, but a courier would be someone who ran fast. And Ahimaaz was known for being the Usain Bolt of the ancient Near East. And he is delivering great news in today's passage. If you haven't been here, there has been a battle. There has been a civil war, we might call it, in ancient Israel. And Absalom and the bad guys, the majority of the country, were against David, the anointed king. The anointed King David has been displaced from the city, from the palace, from Jerusalem. He's on the run. And the evil son, in every good story, there's a good guy and a bad guy. The bad guy is Absalom, and he's, he's got the people. He's got the territory. He's got the palace. And there was a battle. We saw it last week. And in that battle that took place in a forest, the, the weaker force, the force of David's mighty men, beat the mighty army of Israel led by Absalom, and Absalom was defeated. David has been in a secure location. He's been in Air Force One, flying above, safe from the battle. And they are sending a runner to him once he's on the ground, of course, and letting him know what the outcome was. And this guy, Ahimehaz, is so excited to deliver the news about what has happened. David is awaiting the outcome, and that's where we pick it up today in, uh, in our passage. Sorry. Did I leave my outline over there, bud? Huh. Would you mind bringing that to me? That's a little embarrassing church, but, you know, we're just kind of a real church here. We don't, we don't, uh, here's a Himahaz right here. Bringing it to me. Yeah. I needed that. 
Okay. Uh, yeah, okay, here we go. Where are we? Verse 19. So the battle is over. The good guys have won, but David doesn't know. David doesn't know. So we're in 2 Samuel 18 and verse 19. So now Ahimehaz, son of Zadok, said, Let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. You are not the one to take the news today, Joab told him. Joab, if you forgot who he is, he's, he's the general, if you will. He's the right-hand man. He's in charge of the military. You're not the one, he says. Continuing in verse 20, you may take the news another time, but you must not do so today because the king's son is dead. So the reader is clued in here that Joab knows King David's heart, and Ahimehaz doesn't. And Joab knows that the king is not going to receive this, this great, this good news in a good and positive way. Ahimehaz doesn't know that. Joab does. So Joab says, no, you, you're not the one. Verse 21, then Joab said to a Cushite, that would be a foreigner, a non-Israelite. So, you know, just to follow the text here, we're working down the scale from the king to the general to the courier we're down to a lower-level soldier here, a Cushite. He says, you go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed down before Joab, and he runs off. So this unnamed Cushite, the courier, is gone. He's running. This is how things were communicated in the ancient Near East, by a runner, literally a runner. Verse 22, Ahimehaz, son of Zadok, again said to Joab, Come what may, please let me run behind the Cushite. So you're getting a sense of the personality of, of uh, Ahimehaz. Any of you have children, had children like this or have children like this? No, please, please, mom, please, dad, can I go? No. Please, 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 can, can I go? Can I go? And then you think they forgot and they come back. Please, 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 can I go? So this is what's going on here. Middle of verse 22. So Joab says, my son, why do you want to go? You don't have any news that will bring you a reward. So we get a little flavor of Joab's heart here. Joab is a, is a man who's, who's looking for results and rewards, for money, for, for medallions on the warrior's chest. He's, he's, he's looking for that. You're not going to get any of that. You don't want to go. Verse 23, come what may, I want to run. <laughs> so he is persistent with General Joab. So finally, verse 23, Joab says, run. Then Ahimehaz ran by way of the plain, and he outran the Cushite. So, you know, we don't have a time elapse here how much of a head start he had, but he had some head start, and he outruns him. So here we are, verse 24, while David was sitting between the inner and outer gates, the watchman went up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out to the king and reported it. The king said, oh, if he's alone, he must have good news. And the man came closer and closer. Let me just pause here for a moment. So David is, is anticipating what has happened in this battle. What has happened? And what he would be thinking, he would be thinking if we lost the battle, there's going to be a lot of men running my way. 
running because they're, they're fearful of their lives and we've lost and they're, and they're running to escape and they're running to tell me that we've got to flee, we've got to keep running. Something that was so uncharacteristic of David's earlier life is now characteristic of his life, being afraid and running. You remember, who, who did David take on? A pretty, pretty big guy, you remember him? Goliath. But David has been running and running and running. So he is anticipating this runner, this communication, this text, this phone call. And, and if he's alone, David is thinking, this is good news. He must be, or where are we? Verse 26, and the watchman saw another man running. And he called down to the gatekeeper, look, another man running alone. So we have two men running alone with the message. The king said, he must be bringing good news too. Pause here for a moment. You know, what we have from David's perspective here, there is good news that is coming, but David is not going to receive it as good news. And so what we have going on here is, is, is uh, logicians would call this the, the fallacy of wishful thinking. You know, we all fall prey to this. Uh, David is thinking because he's alone, this is going to be the news that I want to hear. But it's not going to be the news that David wants to hear. You know, all of us fall prey to this fallacy, whatever you want to call it. Um, I, I recently, I know this will surprise you, but I recently went mountain biking. And it was... A very dark day, and there were storm clouds, but no storm, no rain coming down. And so the fallacy of wishful thinking, it's not raining right now. If I get out there and go for a ride, I'm going to be just fine. It's not going to rain. And then a half hour later, when I get about like as far from shelter as I could be, it just, boom, it just comes down. And it's like I went swimming, and I'm thinking about where is the closest shelter I can get to. We all have that kind of deficient thinking, the fallacy of wishful thinking. I want A to be true, therefore A is true. That's what David is thinking here. I see him alone. There's two men alone. He must be bringing good news. On one level they are, but from David's perspective, they're not. So the watchman, um, where are we? Yeah, he's a good man. We're at verse 28. Then Ahimehaz called out to the king, all is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground, and said, Praise be to the Lord, to Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, your God. He has delivered up the men who lifted their hands against my Lord the King. I mean, the paraphrase here is, we were outnumbered, but we won. God delivered us. There was this battle in the forest, and don't really, can't really explain how the outcome, how it came about. They had bigger guns and more warriors, but we won. Praise be to God. So Ahimehaz has been able to use his, his talent of fast running and delivered this good news. Verse 29, the king asked, is the young man Absalom safe? This is, of course, David's son, Absalom, the wicked son who's been trying to kill David, who's taken David his own father's wives for himself. He's taken his palace. He's taken his country. And David is saying, is the young man Absalom safe? So Ahimehaz says, I saw great confusion just as Joab was about to send the king's servant and me, your servant, but I don't know what it was. 
There, there was lots of communication and there's lots of chaos. So Ahimehaz doesn't seem to know what has happened to Absalom. So verse 30, King David says, stand aside and wait here. So he stepped aside and stood there. Then the Cushite arrived. So this is, again, we don't have any time lapses here, but this is, this is the Usain Bolt of 2 Samuel, uh, this Ahimehaz. So finally, the guy who left first uh, arrives, and he says, My lord the king, hear the good news. The Lord has delivered you today from all who rose up against you. God was with us. We were victorious. And the king asked the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? The king's son, of course, Absalom. The Cushite replied, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. So in a very skillful way, the Cushite has described what has happened to Absalom without describing what has happened to him. Those of you that were here last week, honor students, what, what, what happened to him? Yeah, he was hung in a tree. Not exactly what you want to hear. So he doesn't tell him exactly how he died, but he describes Absalom as one of the enemies of my lord the king. And, and all who rise up to harm you will have received what he's received. That is the judgment of God. And he is no longer with us. This is what he's communicating to David. Verse 33, the king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. And as he wept, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom. My son, my son, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. David is experiencing intense grief. Many of us here today have experienced intense grief. His grief is so intense, he cannot think clearly. He has no seeming comprehension of how God has just delivered the nation of Israel from wickedness and from evil. He is just consumed with grief. Go back briefly to verse 32. Well, before I do that, let me just draw your attention to a couple things. Seven times he uses the word Absalom here as we go through chapter 19, verse 4 in a few minutes. Seven times he repeats his name. Eight times he repeats, my son, my son, my son. Going back to verse 32, I want to show you something that you probably cannot see in your translation. Remember, the Bible was not written in Spanish or Chinese or English. This part of the Bible was written in Hebrew. And in verse 32, it says, Is the young man Absalom safe? And the second part of Absalom's name is actually the word shalom, a Hebrew word that you probably know, which means peace. And it means a comprehensive sort of peace. It doesn't mean peace in the sense that we don't have conflict or war. It means that I'm safe and whole and good and nourished 
and close to God. That is the second part of Absalom's name. I'm not sure why that got jumbled there, but um, that looks bad, but they're supposed to be right next to each other. Doesn't matter, but uh, yeah, well, I'll go ahead and just tell you. This is the day of me leaving my outline there, and I don't know why the computer did this, but this little thing that looks like a square down here, that's the Hebrew letter that makes the sound M, Mame, and it should be up there. And that second line is Absalom's name, and it would say, in Hebrews right to left, Ab Shalom. And so there's a play of words here. Now you don't know that Absalom's name is Ab Shalom because it's just really impossible to kind of bring that out in English, but that's what his name is. And so what David is saying in verse 32, he's saying, is the young man Ab Shalom Shalom? It's a powerful expression. It's a, it's a play on words. Is Absalom shalom? Does my son have peace and wholeness? Now, Joab knew that this is what was going to be on David's heart. And David has just learned that his son not only does not have shalom, but he is dead. And it has been communicated to him in such a way that is true that Absalom was an enemy of David, an enemy of God, an enemy of the people of God. He was doing tremendous evil. Let's come back to our text here. Uh, we're in verse 33. The king has just learned this terrible news. Simultaneous with great news, but he can't see the great news. All he sees from his perspective is the terrible news that his son is dead. This is his third son who has died. So 19.1. Joab was told... The king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So a courier now, some time has elapsed, has gone back probably. Uh, not entirely sure. The author here is not, not he's not like an American. He's, he's not telling us about sequence and time and so on. So Joab is told the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And look at verse 2. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning. So this was, should have been for them a great day of celebration. But they've heard that their king, their beloved King David, is in mourning. And so now they are all mourning. Because on that day, the troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son. So I'm in 19 in verse 3. The men stole into the city that day. So that's language describing a defeated army. A defeated army would like sneak back into their homes, ashamed. Instead of having a parade and a celebration, that's what they were expecting. But they, they, they sneak back into their homes as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle, verse 3 says. Verse 4, the king covered his face and cried aloud, Oh, my son, Absalom, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. He's, he's, he's just consumed absolutely consumed with grief and mourning and sadness. His life has been terrible for some time. And here, his third son is gone. One commentator writes this. He says, David lets his own grief overcome not just his kingly responsibilities, but even his gratitude 
to God for saving the nation. God has just saved the nation of Israel. And David is not able to see that. Now his grief is like the grief that some of you and I have experienced. But in other ways, his grief is unlike the kind of grief that you and I have experienced. I don't think we have any kings or prime ministers with us today. Kings, prime ministers, and presidents have a level of responsibility that few have. And David is one of those. Not only does he have tremendous responsibility to lead the nation, who happens to be the people of God here, not just any nation, but David is in part responsible for what has happened. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, you might remember late one afternoon, David's whole life changed. The trajectory of his life changed when he committed adultery and murder. And this is what Nathan the prophet said to him as Nathan was confronting him. He says, this is what God is speaking to David through Nathan the prophet after the sin of adultery and murder and others. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite, one of your faithful men, David. You have struck him down with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You used your enemy to do your dirty work to kill the man that you wanted to kill. So you were actually even cowardly in your murder. This is what God is saying to David through Nathan. Here comes the real hard part. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. House there is not referring literally to a house, but to his family. A paraphrase here is your sons are going to be violent. His oldest son, Amnon, was incredibly violent toward a woman. Absalom murdered that son, Amnon. So when it says, the sword shall never depart from your house... There is a linkage with David's grief. Not only does he have the responsibility of a king, not only does, does he have that upon him and the normal grief that a father would have, but he has God's sovereign and mysterious justice in these words. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. That evil was Absalom, who is now dead. This is a complicated grief and a severe grief that David has as the king, as the leader of a nation, as a father, and as someone who in God's sovereign justice brought the justice of God, the wrath of God to David in this way. One commentator says this, he says, David's deep and irrational grief proves how real was God's punishment foretold by Nathan. It is the chief purpose of the writer, the writer of 2 Samuel, 
to emphasize this point. Now, that last sentence on the screen may be a little bit of an overstatement, but he's right. And just let me let you know my heart. I wanted to just skip this part. Are you with me? Like, I just wanted to skip the justice part here. But it's very clearly here. And it's part of the misery that David is feeling. So, I want to shift gears at this point and talk about, we'll come back and finish. Uh, we're going to go through verse um, through verse 8 of chapter 9. We'll come back to that in a moment. But I want to shift gears now and talk about how this passage relates to your life and how it relates to my life. And what I want to say is there's a contrast in 2 Samuel, even in David's own personal life, between a God-centered grief and a self-centered grief. And what we are seeing is self-centered grief in 2 Samuel 19. And it's something that God wants to open our eyes to, what self-centered grief is and what it isn't. Because David has grieved almost oppositely from when he lost his first son, who was an infant, and where he's lost this son, Absalom. So God-centered grief versus self-centered grief. So as we read a narrative passage like this, a story like this, the purpose of us reading the Bible here, of me preaching the Bible, isn't for you to remember this story. That may be very helpful to remember the story. But God wants us to identify a common human condition that we have with someone in this text. And I'm suggesting one of those common human conditions that we have with the person in the text, David, is grief. Whether you've lost a loved one or whether a relationship has ended, grief shows up in a whole variety of ways. It's a common thing that we go through. And it is God's will and we need his grace to have a God-centered sort of grief instead of a self-centered sort of grief. And the first thing I want to say about this is that both are deeply painful. It would be false to say that a God-centered grief isn't painful. Grief is painful. Grief is difficult. And that's the way it is in, in this world. Until we are in the new heavens and new earth, grief is going to hurt. So it is a fallacy. It is false. It is not biblical to think, well, if I'm just close to God, then I'm not going to hurt with this loss. That, 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 that's false. So the critical listener would be saying, well, how is that true? Show me that's true uh, from, from, from Scripture. Um, in John 11, our Lord and Savior Jesus, he had a close friend named Lazarus. And it says there, when he saw Lazarus' sister Mary weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. So did Jesus ever sin? Let me ask this one more time, more than two of you. Did Jesus ever sin? No. He, he, he never sinned. He obeyed all the commandments. He was always God-centered. He was centered on his Father. But he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. So there is a, a point of connection of the depth of the grief that Jesus experienced when his friend Lazarus died and a point of connection with the grief that David has experienced now for the third time losing a child, or the grief that you or I have experienced. And the passage goes on and says, So he was moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? 
And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Jesus wept. So it is normal to weep. It is actually healthy to weep. It is biblical to weep. And and I want to very clearly say that God-centered grief involves pain. And we can see this from the text of Scripture in Jesus' life and the pain he experienced. The second thing I want to say as we try to apply this passage to our lives is that God-centered grief versus self-centered grief, what we're seeing in today's passage in David is self-centered grief, is that God-centered grief is other-oriented. God-centered grief looks outside of ourselves to God, but to other things as well. That is not what David is doing here, but it is what David did back in chapter 12. I'm going to turn there. You can turn there or just listen to me. Chapter 12 and verse 16. The occasion here is David losing his first son, who was an infant. And in verse 16, listen to the difference of God-centered grief and self-centered grief. In chapter 12, it's God-centered grief. David pleaded with God for the child. He's praying in 16. He's heard from God that this child is going to be taken from him. So David's response is to pray. That is absent in the chapter that we were just looking at. In 18 and 19, that's absent. David is not praying. He is not seeking God. So I'm in 12, 16. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted. He fasted. And he went, it should say here, he, he, he went down to the ground and spent the nights lying on the ground. So David recognizes he's experiencing grief even before he's lost his son. He knows he, he's, he's sick and he's going to die. Some of you have been there as well in that sort of a situation. So, so grief doesn't just happen when someone dies. It's, it's happening with the likelihood of someone dying here. And so he's fasting, he's lying on the ground outdoors and praying. Verse 17, the elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground. Like, we don't want our king to be in this position. He's lying outside in the dirt on the ground, praying and fasting. But David refused. And he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, David is grieving, he's in pain. But he is fasting and praying. He has an other orientation. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. Paraphrase, he may take his life. We we, we can't tell him that his child is dead. David notices his servants are whispering among themselves. Unlike in today's passage where he's reading people wrongly, fallacy of wishful thinking in today's passage, David is astute here. He sees them whispering rather than saying, oh, he must be alive. He realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. The the, the omniscient narrator, whoever wrote this, tells us he's already thinking he's dead, but he just says, is the child dead? Yes. They replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground after he had washed, 
put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went into the house or the tent or the tabernacle of the Lord and he worshiped. He worshiped. You see the difference between self-centered grief and God-centered grief? God-centered grief grief is other-oriented. God-centered grief looks to God in prayer and fasting. Both are deeply painful. Deeply painful. But it is other-oriented. We've already looked at this passage today in Matthew's gospel. We're going to look at it briefly now in Mark's gospel. We looked at it in confession in Matthew. It is so fundamental to have an other orientation. Someone asked Jesus, what is the most important commandment? And, and here he has a little fuller response in Mark's gospel than in Matthew's. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God, and he is to be the central devotion of your life. He is your greatest thought by day or night. He is your greatest treasure. There's only one God. Make sure you know that, and he is at the center of your life. In other orientation, so what, what's the most important commandment? There's only one God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. David knew, not from Mark's gospel or Matthew's gospel, but he knew from the Torah, from Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He knew that. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Ahad in Hebrew it says. You will hear people in Israel saying that all over the place. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love him with everything that you have, even when you are grieving. David was able to do that back in chapter 12. It's gone here. It's gone. David is consumed with his grief, but his grief has no other orientation to it. He's not looking to God. He's not looking to others. He's not looking to the kingdom. He's clueless about the heart of the fastest runner in Israel who couldn't wait to come and tell him the good news. David has no idea of that guy's heart. Oh, you're just telling me about that? Step aside. Let me see what this guy has to say. So number three, we're talking about God-centered grief or self-centered grief. Self-centered grief, it blinds the griever. David's blind. He, he can't read what's going on around him. He's clueless about his responsibility as king. But most importantly, he is not looking to the Lord. In fact, we could say that his insistence on Absalom living has become his idol. It has become his God at this point. Matthew Henry writes this. He says, David now forgot his own reasonings upon the death of another child. And then Matthew Henry quotes what David said. Some of you might remember when he lost his firstborn son, David is preaching to himself. David is thinking, like any of us who have gone through deep grief, I don't even know how I can go on. I don't know how I can make it through today. I don't know how I can get out of bed. I, I, I can't do it. 
So David preached to himself, can I bring this baby back again? Can I bring my son back? I can't. I can't. So I'm going to move forward. I'm going to move forward. That's what David's attitude is in chapter 12. That's what God-centered grief looks like. It's still incredibly painful. But David moves forward. But in our chapter, he's blind. And let's finish up the text now because someone needs to show him his blindness. Back to 2 Samuel 19 and verse 5. Joab went to the house to the king. Why? Because he's blind. And Joab wants to open his eyes. Today you have humiliated all your men. This is the general talking to the king. Who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You shouldn't have had all those wives and concubines, but you have them. And they are now saved. Verse 6. You love those who hate you. And you hate those who love you. Now, this is overstatement. But Joab is getting his point across. His point, is, his point is you are acting like you hate the soldiers, some of whom gave their lives for you in the forest today, and we are victorious. He goes on. He's trying to open David's eyes. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today. Joab, of course, is thinking we're in this situation because of Absalom's wickedness and evil planning. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord, I swear by Yahweh, this is a serious thing, that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come upon you from your youth till now. Wow. He's had a lot of calamities. This is a strong word. Verse 8, so the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. So I, I could talk about this more, but to just briefly summarize, this is all the text we're going through today. David is finally at the gateway. Now for those of you that might remember, when David, who's been acting cowardly for many, many years, you might remember that someone else was in the gateway, Absalom. The king would normally sit in the gateway and he would adjudicate problems between people. Hey, somebody stole my Tesla. I know who it was. I, I need you to tell him to give me my money. The king in Israel would adjudicate things like that. But David had abrogated that responsibility and Absalom was doing it. And as Absalom was doing it, he won the nation to himself. So finally, David is back where he should be. He's back where he should be in the gateway. So although there aren't many words here, this is hugely symbolic. He's heard what Joab has said. And David is taking a step outside of himself. His blindness has been exposed by Joab. Final point uh, today from the New Testament is that God-centered grief is hope-filled. God-centered grief, grief is hope-filled. It's, it's, it's still deeply painful, but it is filled with hope. We have such tremendous 
benefit living this side of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't want you to, to be uninformed excuse me, about those who are asleep. The Bible uses this language for people who have died being asleep, not because they're asleep, but because there's going to be a resurrection in the future upon Christ's return, a resurrection of the dead. And so it's, it's a theological rich, rich term. We don't want you to be uninformed about those who have died, we would say, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. Jesus is alive today. The hope of the resurrection is our hope. And we are to grieve with hope. This is what God-centered grief looks like for the Christian. I'll close today with the words of a pastor uh, from a couple centuries ago, Jonathan Edwards. He wrote a letter to a woman who was grieving, who had lost her only son. And the, the editor of his letters writes this. So the editor writes about what Edwards is writing in this like seven-page letter, which if we were you know, going to be here for another hour, I would read the whole letter to you. Um, but I'm not going to do that. So, so he says this. says, Edwards assures the grieving mother that rest, refreshment, and confidence are her rightful heritage as a Christian. That's a summary of his letter to this grieving mother. The grieving mother's name was uh, Lady Mary Pepperell. She was, she was you know, um, our, our, this was before we were the United States. This was in the colonies. And there was much more of a hierarchical culture then. And so she has this title of distinguished, this, this distinguished title, Lady. She's, she's up, upper crust, if you will. Edwards is writing from Stockbridge, where, if you can imagine what we call Massachusetts being the frontier, being out west. He, he was sharing the gospel with Indians, putting his own life at, at risk. He was in Stockbridge, which was a, a dangerous place to be at that time. And he's writing to her, this grieving mother. He says, Madam, when I saw the evidence of your deep sorrow, just like David experienced, just like Jesus experienced deep sorrow with Lazarus. When I saw the evidence of your deep sorrow under the awful frowns of heaven in the depth of your only son, it made an impression on my mind. This mother's grief has stayed with him. And this is near the end of his letter. And I'll close with this. He says to her, he points her to God in his letter, and he says, when we are thirsty, we may come to him who is as rivers of waters in a dry place. When we are weary, we may go to him who is as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Having found him who is as the apple tree among the trees of the wood, we may sit under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit may be sweet to our taste. Christ told his disciples that in the world they should have trouble, we shouldn't be surprised that we're grieving. We're going to have trouble. But says he, in me ye shall have peace. The peace of God is available to the grieving believer. We need God's grace to help us 
to have a God-centered sort of grief in our lives. We need God's grace to help us to have hope that will be simultaneous with our pain and suffering and grief. We need to be other-oriented. David needed to go out to the gate and let the people know that they did well, that the army was victorious and God was with them. He needed to be other-oriented. And he eventually was through Joab's help. And sometimes when we grieve, we are just completely blind. And we saw David in that situation until Joab came. Through Christ and his resurrection, we can grieve with hope. And the New Testament makes that so clear. Let's make that the final word today. Let's bow our heads together. God, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for these things that you have shown us in First and Second Samuel. David's life, in many ways, is like our own. Even though none of us have the responsibility of a country or a nation, we're not kings or queens. But we can sure relate to the grief and the sorrow that he felt. We can relate to sins that we've committed that we deeply regret. We pray, God, that the gospel would be uppermost in our minds and not our sins. It seems that David's sins were uppermost in his mind and not that God has forgiven him. Hope seems to be so far from him until Joab opens his eyes to what you really need to do right now is just this, David. So God, to whatever degree any of us here have blindness today, open our eyes. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.